Hey, church, I deeply miss you, and I'm looking forward to and longing for the day where we get back together. Uh, Until that day, we know our marching orders. It's to live in obedience to the one who gave himself for us. So what we're going to do now is uh, we're going to turn our eyes to God's word and hear God's word proclaimed. Uh, So grab your Bible turn to John chapter five. I want you to have one in front of you so you can see these are not the claims of me and myself. Uh, They're not the claims of man's thoughts, but this is God's word. So I want you to see that. John chapter five will be in verse 30, uh, looking to finish out the chapter, Lord willing. This is God's holy word. Hear the reading of God's word. Jesus himself says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. If I have, come, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you on the, I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. May its eternal truths be written on our hearts. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask for your help right now to make the call clear to proclaim the good news of Christ. Would your word have its full effect on our hearts and our souls and the witnesses you call to the stand? Would they bear down their weight on our souls that it may have its perfect effect? Praise all, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, the title of this message is let the witness take the stand. To remind us and situate us of the context of John chapter 5, what has happened so far is Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath at the beginning of the chapter. 
Now, the Jews got very angry about this because they have built a lot of laws around the Sabbath, not laws that are found in the Bible, but their own laws to be able to try to protect the Sabbath that God told them to honor. So they're upset that he broke their uh, religious laws that weren't prescribed by God, but were their own. Jesus claimed God as his own father and he claimed authority to be able to judge all to either heaven or hell. And the Jews, they now desire to kill him because of what he did with the Sabbath and because what he claimed with the father. Read in verse 18 and you get the summary and you get kind of the feeling of what it would be like to walk in the room at this moment. It's tense. This is why verse 18 says the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. And so you can imagine the tension that's hanging in the air after Jesus has said, I am going to judge everyone, that there will be a resurrection where everyone who has ever lived will rise from the dead and they will be judged according to what they have done, according to their works. And if you remember last week, this is not a message of salvation by works, but rather the one great work we are called to is to believe Jesus. And that will in turn bear fruit. But there is coming a day where Jesus himself will judge the world. And so you can imagine the feeling in the air as judgment has been talked about. The most sobering reality and the most sobering topic that can ever be brought up. I remember as a student at Westmont, uh, speaking with a friend who was a Muslim that uh, we had been friends for years at school and had talked about a lot of different things. And we had talked about matters of the faith. One night we were studying together and the conversation turned to Jesus. The conversation turned to what do we do with Jesus? And I turned to my friend who I love and... <clears throat> said, look, let's just be honest. I know that you think I'm going to hell because of my religion, because I trust in Christ. And you have not trusted in Jesus to cleanse you from your sin. And there's no one else who can cleanse you from your sin. He said, we both believe there's a judgment day coming. Will you not turn to Jesus to know your sins have been washed away. And the feeling in the air was electric. It's where seconds turn to minutes. And there's just silence. Eventually my friend said, I I can't believe that God would have a son and that that son could ever die. And so they, they didn't turned to Christ and broke my heart. And we eventually turned to a different topic. Well, the feeling is in the air as Jesus has brought up judgment. And perhaps for some of us, we think as we hear about judgment, about all those people out there, the Muslims and the Buddhists and the new age uh, philosophy followers, and we think of all of them, but what's astonishing about our text when we read it in context, is Jesus here, he's not speaking to everyone out there. He's not speaking to Muslims. 
He's not speaking to Buddhists, though obviously his words and his message have significance and reach out to them. No, he's speaking here to the Jews, to his own people, to the people who thought they were in. He's speaking to the closest modern day parallel probably be church people, us. And Jesus, he has told people, you need to honor the son. You must believe all of what I say. And he does this because he wants these people he's speaking to, to be saved. Look at verse 34. We see the heart of the text of why Jesus is going to say all the things he's going to say. Midway through, he says, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus loves them enough to tell them of the coming judgment of God, that he himself will judge because the father has given him the right to do that. And he says, I want you to be saved. And so Jesus now, after telling them of the judgment of God, is going to bring four witnesses to the stand, as it were, to testify to these people. And I want you to know, he's not doing this so much for his sake as for their sake, and still today for our sake. He does it because he loves them. And his purpose in doing this is to make absolutely clear what the call is and what it looks like to repent. He does this so that these people and us still today, that we would be humbled and thus not proud and be willing to admit our need for a savior. And he does it lastly so that we would all be without excuse. In verses 30 through 32, the opening of our text, Jesus paves the way for calling the witnesses to the stand. He says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now in the first verse, we see Jesus talk about, I don't seek my own will, but I seek the will of him who sent me. We can uh, get a little confused, say, does Jesus have a different will than the Father? But when we read this in context, we find uh, that Jesus has just been talking about how everything he does, he does because the Father has given it to him to do. What Jesus is saying here, essentially, is that I and the Father have one will. I do what I do because the Father asks me to do it because we have the same will. We're getting uh, here, we see the truth that has been professed by all believers throughout all time. That's found in Deuteronomy 6, a passage that the Jews would have memorized. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That God is one, that there aren't two wills inside of him. Uh, And so the Father and the Son, they don't have different purposes, but the Father and the Son have one will that Uh, He doesn't seek his own will as opposed to the will of him who sent him. In the next verse, Jesus acknowledges the need that we have for witnesses. 
And uh, he brings up something that we kind of understand uh, today by our need for a notary. So you have some legal documents. And on those legal documents, there's two uh, places for a signature. The first signature is for you who is signing it. And the second is for a witness. We have this on uh, wedding uh, wedding marriage licenses as well. Jesus says, if I bear witness about myself, it's not true. Now, Jesus here isn't saying I'm a pathological liar. No, what he's saying is we know that if someone just says, believe me because I said so, that we might need a little bit more reasoning, that it would be fair to have another witness. And so Jesus says, I grant that. I grant that. I know that if I only say who I am and believe me because of who I say I am, that that's circular. And so I want to call more witnesses to the stand. But he says, before I do this, before I introduce the witnesses, I want you to know there is one who bears witness about me. Another one. And the witness he bears about me is true. And Jesus here, before naming who this witness is, hints at the fact of who he will bring up. And that is his own father. He says, look, I'll talk to you about a couple of these others, but I need you to know there is one who already bears witness about me, my father. But he calls witnesses up nonetheless for the sake of those whom he loves And I want you to notice all of who he calls. Because if you would wonder, who would the Jews want to be able to prove who the Messiah is and who Jesus is? Uh, It's actually, they would probably pick every single one of these witnesses that Jesus himself calls. And so Jesus isn't playing some unfair game. He's saying, I want you to see from the things you claim you would trust most who I am. And so he calls his witnesses to the stand. The first witness he calls is the witness from the wilderness, who is John the Baptist. Let's read in verses 33 to 35. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus says, the first witness I want to bring up is the one that you asked for. Don't you guys remember? And if you remember earlier in the gospel of John, we saw religious Jewish leaders call for John to hear the testimony that he had to give. And so Jesus says, remember the person you wanted his testimony? Well, his testimony was true. Now look, I I don't need his testimony. That's not what I need to prove who I am. But I want you to remember what his testimony was. And what was his testimony? His testimony was this. You must repent. You, all of you, must turn from your wicked ways because the kingdom of God is coming. And when it comes, you need to trust in the Savior. And so you have all sinned. You need to be baptized as a sign of your repentance. And when the one comes, trust in him. And so he was a voice crying out in the wilderness until the day that Jesus came. And in chapter one of John, we see Jesus come onto the scene and John, the voice crying out in the wilderness, cries out, behold 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, this is the one now. Trust in him. Okay, you were repenting of your sin, but now you must trust in him. And what a lot of people didn't like about John was he was saying everyone needs to be baptized, even Jews, which was unusual for the time. At the time, the only people that needed to be baptized were those outside Gentiles who were not born into uh, the covenant people of God. But John said, no, everyone needs to repent. Everyone needs to turn from their wicked ways. And so Jesus says, do you remember him? I bring this up, not because I need him, but because I want you to be saved. And John, he said, you must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In 35, Jesus says, he was a burning and shining lamp. Now, there's a couple things I want you to recognize about what Jesus says. The first is the past tense that he's talking about. And the second is what he, how he describes John. First, he says he was. This is likely cluing us in on the timing of this conversation. We know from the other gospels that John the Baptist would die at the hands of a wicked political ruler. Because John the Baptist called out his sexual perversion And it ultimately cost him his head. The religious leaders, they for a while rejoiced in John the Baptist. Jesus says he was a shining lamp. He was a burning lamp. But he himself wasn't the light, as John said over and over again, but he gave witness to the light. He says, remember who he bore witness to? It was me. And he says, you rejoiced for a while in his light. But if you kept bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, or did you just rejoice for a little while? And I want to ask you too, sitting at home, have you believed in Christ And are you continuing to rejoice in the joy you have found in him? Or did you rejoice once and maybe you found yourself on here? You you go through the motions, but you you don't truly find in him your life and your joy. I want you to know the call of the gospel has never been that it's enough to just pray a prayer and just repeat words and say, yeah, I, I believe it and raise a hand or sign a card. If we just pray a prayer and we remain in our sin and we remain unchanged, that, that is no evidence that you have ever been changed by the love of God. In fact, John, in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, this is judgment. This is judgment. That light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. For their works were evil. John the Baptist came. And he bore, as it were, a lamp to the true light of Jesus. And he said, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And these people, they rejoiced for a little while, but they did not remain. Jesus calls John the Baptist to the stand. He says, you guys asked for him, 
but you didn't listen to him. But there's a greater witness. There's a weightier witness that I have. And so he calls his second witness to the stand, which is the witness of Jesus's works. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus here tells us, I bring my second witness and it's all the works that I've done. Jesus outright tells us the point of all of his miracles, of all of his signs. He say, He says, they are all happening so that they would bear witness to me that I am who I say I am, that I say the Father has sent me. And so you believe the Father has sent me and that when I say I and the Father are one, that I can't do anything apart from the Father, that I only do what I see him doing. I am telling the truth. I am the son of God. That is the purpose of Jesus's miracles. Now, you might be thinking about the prophets who did a lot of miracles in the Old Testament. We'll lead to the side, Jesus's greatest miracle of taking upon himself the sin of the world and dying on the cross, suffering the wrath of God, being laid in a tomb for three days and then rising from the dead. We'll lay aside that miracle that no one else has ever done. And we'll talk about the other miracles because the prophets did a lot of the same things that Jesus did. Uh, dead people had been raised in the past. People had been healed. Uh, different miracles have happened. But what's the difference between Jesus and these other prophets? Well, the difference is the words of Jesus. None of the prophets said, I just healed someone, therefore you know I am God. You know I healed someone to prove that I can forgive sin. No other prophet ever said anything like that, but Jesus did. And he says, you've seen my works, the very works that I am doing. I just healed a lame man. Do you want to know why I did that? It's to prove what I say about myself is true. The father, he sent Jesus and he sent him to call us out of our wandering. He didn't send him just to do miracles, but the miracles accompany Jesus to prove his true identity. They attest to his identity. And so we must constantly make sure that we do not put miracles in the wrong place. We must not set our hope on a miracle in this life. We set our hope on Christ You see, Christ has promised that ultimate healing will come to every single person who trusts in him. He promises that there is coming a day where you will have every single material need you ever need provided for and more than provided for. He has promised there's coming a day where you will never struggle with sin, where you will never be lonely. But that day is in the new heavens and the new earth. It is not yet fully here. And we have the blessing, the privilege to follow him on this earth every single day and to tell others about him. But his kingdom is not yet fully here. And therefore, we need to not put the miracles that God is able to do in a wrong place. We should not set our hope on seeing something 
come to fruition in this life above putting our hope and setting our hope on Jesus. I want to point out to us that if your body hurts and aches and you got the healing that you you desperately desire, which would be a good thing, but your soul was still bent in on itself and you still worshiped false things. If your stomach was completely full, but you never tasted of the bread of life. If this disease that we're dealing with right now, if it was completely cast out, but we were not forgiven, cleansed, ultimately rid of the disease of our sin, then we would be the most to be pitied. Jesus' works were meant to attest to his identity. He brings them up before the people. He says, they're just meant to point to me, but you've been blind. You've missed it. And these works are from the Father, he says. And so as we see the Son do these works, we are seeing the work of the Father. We see the Father. And so we start to find out there's a link between the Son and the Father, the works of the Son and the witness of the Father. And that brings us directly into the third witness of Jesus, which is the witness of the Father. Read with me in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Okay, so tensions are rising at this point, right? Jesus brings up John the Baptist. And he says, you remember him? And so they do, they remember him. They remember what his witness was, that it was about Jesus. And he brings up the works that they were getting angry about, even the works of healing on the Sabbath. And he starts talking about the Father, and then he just outright says it. In verse 37, the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. My Father has borne witness about me. And then he proceeds to bring three charges, three indictments against them. He says, my father, you've never heard his voice. You've never seen his form and his word does not abide in you. Now remember, Jesus is bringing these things up that they may be saved, that they may have their eyes open, that they would be cut to the heart. He says, first, you've never heard his voice. This is an indictment. We know that God spoke audibly to Moses in the Old Testament, probably the most famous uh, instance of God speaking audibly in the Old Testament and that they claim Moses as their own. He's, He's our teacher. He's the one. We read his books. We know him. And it's also interesting to know in the New Testament, there's two times that the Father is noted as speaking audibly. And it's at the baptism and the transfiguration of Jesus. And do you know what he says both times? He says, this is my son. 
Listen to him. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus says, you've never heard the voice of the father. If you don't listen to what God has said about Jesus, that he is king and Lord, that you are a sinner that needs saving, and that he is a loving and ready savior, that you are to live your life under his lordship, that you are to repent of your sin or you will perish. If you do not listen to what God has said about Jesus, that he is his son, listen to him. Then you have never heard the voice of God. Secondly, he says, you've never seen his form. Now this brings to mind the scene of Jacob wrestling with an angel where there's said to be one in the form of God. And it appears maybe to be a man, maybe to be an angel, but then it's equated named also with God. And so people thought God kind of appeared in this instance, what was happening there? And they would claim Jacob. He's our patriarch. But the salient point here is don't, don't look anywhere but Jesus to know what God is like. Don't go anywhere. In John 1.18, it says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, that is Jesus, has made him known. The verb there, the Greek word literally trans, translated into English is he has exegeted the Father. He has shown what it looks like to see the Father. As we look at Jesus, we see the Father. He says, I, I'm standing right in front of you, and so I have the authority to say, you have never seen the Father. Because he and I are one, and I'm standing right in front of you. I came to you, and you're blind. And thirdly, he says, you don't have his word abiding in you. Now, this is pressing them to the breaking point. You haven't heard God, you haven't seen him, and you don't have his word abiding in you. The Jews must have been thinking at this time, are you kidding me? The word of God, the law, the Torah? This was their pride. This was their joy. So many of them gave themselves to memorizing the first five books of the Bible. They say, we don't have his word abiding in us. Do you know how much we've memorized of his word? But implicitly what Jesus is saying is that you are in sin. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The purpose of hiding God's word, of have God, having God's word abide in our hearts is so that we wouldn't sin. And so he says, you don't have God's word abiding in you. You are in sin. And he says, all of these things, you've never heard his voice. You don't, you haven't seen what he looks like and you don't have his word abiding in you. He says, you know how I know that? 
for you don't believe his messenger. For you don't believe the one whom he has sent. And so what we see utterly clearly is that what you do with Jesus, and I mean the real Jesus, I mean the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who will come one day and judge the world in righteousness, the Jesus who gave his life as a propitiation for our sins, the Jesus who rose from the dead, not the Jesus of our own imaginings, not the Jesus of what culture tells us he is like, but Jesus as he is revealed to us in the word of God, risen from the dead, what you do with this real Jesus is what you do with God. He says, you don't know God. Then he drives it all the way. He says, witness number four, come to the stand, the witness of scripture. I'll read verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now, Jesus here isn't saying, he's not saying you search the scriptures. Some translations, you diligently search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. He's not saying uh, you put too much emphasis on the Bible. You guys were just legalistic in how you read uh, and cared about the Bible. And so you needed to just put it to the side, kind of. He, he's not saying that. He's not saying you care too much about the Bible and you read the Bible too much. What he's saying, in essence, is it's astounding. It's, it's like you've never even read the Bible at all. He says, you tell me you you memorized all this stuff, but I don't know if you've ever read a single word of it. He says, you've missed the entire storyline of scripture. He says, you've missed it all. Now, in preparation this week, I was reading this intently and trying to figure out, okay, what verse is it that Jesus or section of verses Jesus is referring to when he says, uh, you don't see it's because it's, they bear witness about me. Well, what is it? Is it one verse in Deuteronomy or is it this or is it that? And then I realized what Jesus is saying here is he's not quoting just one verse. That's his entire point. He's saying, you've missed the entire thing. I'm talking about every single book of the Old Testament, all 39 of them, Genesis through Second Chronicles, which was their Bible, or Genesis through Malachi, which is our Bible. He says, you've completely missed it. He's saying, you don't realize the story of scripture? That even from the very beginning, when humanity rebelled against God, And so God cursed the world, but then God in grace and mercy promised, I'm going to send one from the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent who tempted you and who is going to redeem everything as far as the curse is found. 
you don't see that I was talking about me? He says, don't, how did you miss it? Did you really think every king, every human king who was ever given, don't you see how they fell short? Don't you see that no human king, not even David was able to save, but that I promised, that the prophets promised there would come one from the line of David and that same line in the seed of the woman, a son of David who would rule this earth perfectly. Someone who is more than a human. Someone who the Lord called Lord. Didn't you read about that? He says, the temple really like, Didn't you hear the verses that say that the glory of God will fill the whole earth as the waters cover the seas? My my glory was never going to be contained to just one area or the sacrificial system. Did you really think that the blood of goats and the blood of bulls could take away your sins? No, it was about one who would come as a, that those things were types and shadows of what God was going to do. Do you remember Abraham who believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness because he believed that God himself would provide a sacrifice? Did you miss it when Moses said, be careful to do all of these things, every single one of the laws, that if you've broken one commandment, you've broken them all and you're liable to the curses that come with disobedience to the law but that God himself promised, I'll be faithful to my covenant. That when Israel went astray and committed spiritual adultery, acted the harlot, that God said, I'm a faithful husband though, and I love you and I'll win you back to myself. I'll buy you back at great cost to myself. Says the entire story has been leading up to one who would come and perfectly fulfill the law that you couldn't do and also take upon himself the curses of the law that you deserved. And he would rise from the dead and he would be the perfect king and he would usher in God's kingdom. But it would come through a cross, what Jesus refers to as his hour. He says, did you ever read a single part of the Old Testament? You search the scriptures but you did it in vain. You thought in them you had eternal life, but they were always talking about me. So still today, if we come to the Bible to find just simply an uplifting verse that makes us feel like uh, we're not really that bad or to find another discipline that can just improve our lives a little bit, we've missed it. We've missed the fact that God himself came to this earth to set things right at greatest cost to himself. That the kingdom of God is coming. Have you read the scriptures? Do you understand the scriptures? Jesus isn't saying there's some kind of hidden meaning in here. He's saying it was always so clear that we needed a savior beyond ourselves. And in the last unfolding verses, what Jesus does is he loves us enough 
to put his finger on our heart and point out the sin that is keeping us from him. For some of us, it's the sin that is keeping us from being saved because we have never truly trusted in Christ. For others, it's sin that is dangerous because you have not confessed it and you are walking in it. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but turn from your sin. But listen, Jesus loves you enough. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to continue in the hope of the gospel. And so listen with me, the four sins Jesus identifies of these Jews and that are still true of people today. He says the first sin that they are guilty of that scripture bears witness to is that verse 40, you will not come. He says in verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Look, the call of the gospel is repentance and trust in God. The call is utterly clear. You must turn away from your sin. Do whatever it takes. What does that mean? That means if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. That means if your eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. That means at home, if your access to the internet is causing you to sin against God, cut the cords, go on a walk. If someone's contact in your phone is causing you to walk away from God and what he has told you to do, delete their contact, smash your phone, do whatever it takes, repent. Call up whatever friend you know who is a Christian who is walking with the Lord and say, I need help because I don't even know what to do. And they'll help you do it. The call to turn away from our sin, the problem isn't that it, it's not clear enough. You absolutely know what your sin is and what you need to repent of. And if you don't know, cry out to God and he will reveal it to you. No, the problem isn't that the call is blurry The problem is that you're not willing to come. The reason people don't come to Christ is they will not to. Listen, sometimes people think my sin is too bad that God couldn't forgive me. That is a lie from the pit of hell. There is no sin too bad. Do you think so low of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead? He will take you. He will forgive you. It is not sin that could ever keep you from coming to Jesus. And no matter what sin you are struggling with, you can come to him. What's standing in the way is your willingness to do it. But I implore you, Come to Christ. Won't you come to him? Your sin is not too bad. Come to him. He said these things again that you may be saved. Recognize you have been unwilling and say, but God, I'm willing now. Would you take me? Says the second sin 
is that you don't love God. Verses 42 and 43, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What Jesus says is that we must recognize and confess deeper than our outward actions, our posture of heart is that apart from God saving us, we don't love God. Nobody's testimony is that they were born and they always loved God. We have all turned our own way, all gone astray like sheep. I remember confessing some sin when I was first, this was years ago, when I was first starting to help out at the church and I was spending a lot of time with Bo and I felt like I had so much head knowledge, but I don't, I don't know how to be a Christian, I felt like. I don't know how to kill my sin. And so I was confessing some sin to my friend, Bo, and I said, I don't know why I keep doing this. And it was the unteenth time, if you know what I mean, confessing the sin. Why do I keep doing this? And he, because it was like the 30th time of me confessing the same exact thing with no evident change, he loved me enough to look me in the eyes as we were sitting in the Chipotle on Upper State Street and say, you keep turning to your sin because you love your sin more than you love God. And it cut my heart, but I knew he was right. Our ultimate sin is not the bad things we have done, but that we have not loved God above all else. Though he's altogether lovely, what has God ever done that is wrong? No, the judgment, as we already said, is that he came into the world, but we love darkness more than light because our hearts, our works were evil. But here's the good news This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. And so hear the love of God. Confess the truth that you haven't loved God, but come to him. Won't you come to him? And Christian, you who have come to him before, I want to ask you, in the season of coronavirus, Have you given in to unconfessed sin? Are you walking in the darkness? If so, bring it out into the light. Don't let the sin deceive your heart and become hardened. We must say, no, I don't want to remain in sin. I don't want to do that. I want to love God. Jesus is speaking to people. The Jews who they tithed, they read the Bible, they attended synagogue, which means we need to search our own hearts and ask ourselves, do I have genuine love for God? Or is there something I love more? Which is what Jesus puts his finger on in the third sin. He says in verse 41, that he doesn't receive glory from people. But in verse 44, 
he points out our problem. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He says, I don't seek approval. But then he says, here's your problem. You desire man's praise and man's glory instead of God and his approval and his praise. He asks the searching heart question, how can you come when you care more about people than God? And all these sins are connected. He says, you, can't, you will not come because you don't love God because you love the praise and seek the glory from men. And as long as we search after and we seek after the praise and the approval of men, we will never truly come to God. Now, it may look really deceptive because this sin of seeking the approval of the world and seeking the praise of man, it can look sinful or it can look saintly. It can look like selfishness of, I just want to get rich and I just care about the things of the world the lust of the eyes and the lust of my flesh and the pride of the world. I just care about being top dog at the office. I just care about making more money so I'll do what it takes. I just care about giving into what my flesh wants. I just want the love of a woman and so I don't care what God says about his rules. Or I now want the love of another woman. It can look sinful or it can look saintly. I'm reading the biography right now of Adoniram Judson, one of the first American Baptist missionaries. And when he was a young teen, he had this profound moment where he decided, what I want to do is be a pastor. I want to be a great preacher, he said. And his father was a preacher. And so he was thinking about it. He said, yeah, I want to be a great preacher who can give great sermons and preach in a big church in New York City or in Boston. And he later kind of fell away from that. But most of us, we would look at that and say, well, that's a great desire. That's a good thing. His dad was incredibly proud of him. But when he finally came to Christ, he realized that his desire to be a great preacher, it was the same desire he later had to just be a great playwright. He just wanted to be great in the eyes of men. At the time, he cared a lot about what people in the church thought. Later on, before becoming a true convert, he was a deist. And so he said, I don't really think God exists. So I just want to be approved of by people in the culture. We can aspire to quote-unquote great things, but in the end, just be after the praise and approval of man. And so I need to ask you, do you care more about what God says and what God thinks in his praise and his approval than you do the approval of the world and of fellow man? What if you never are famous? What if you never have the following you hope for. Well, I want you to know, I want you to hear that the praise and the approval of man, it'll never be enough for you. Like what is the love of a woman 
The temporary love of a woman or a man in a romantic relationship if you forfeit the love of God. What are all the riches we could gain in this world? What would benefit us if we forfeit our souls? The Lord Jesus himself said, if you try to find your life in this world, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Which means humbling ourselves. It means saying, I don't call the shots over my own life. I don't determine the fruit of my ministry. I don't determine at the end of the day what my legacy is. My legacy is seeking after the kingdom of God. And with that, I will rejoice. If I have that, I trust God will add to me everything else I need. Follow Christ and forsake the world's approval. Because his love is so much better. And he will add what you need. But is there anything you care more about than the approval of God? So how can you come to Christ? You need to forsake it. It can never save you. It hasn't saved you. What fruit has it gotten you yet? When I think about my own sin that I gave myself over to, what fruit did it ever get me? But Christ's approval to know that I am accepted and loved, not because I've been perfect, but in spite of all of my wickedness, it's true purpose, it's true love, it's true joy. He says, lastly, the last sin is that you don't have true faith in God's word. You haven't believed Moses. You haven't believed any of it. Verse 45 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What he says in summary is this. You've never truly trusted the word of God. If you trusted the word of God, you would have trusted Moses and you would have seen how it was always about God who makes the way. God who would provide a greater prophet as talked about in Deuteronomy 18. God who would provide a Messiah. God who would uphold both ends of his covenant somehow. He says, you've missed the purpose of the law. And if you don't believe Moses's words, how can you believe my words? As an aside, This is one of the great reasons we have for confidence in all of the Old Testament, that Moses did write the first five books of the Bible. But passing beyond that, we see the purpose of it. And the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law is this, not to show you how you can be righteous perfectly before God, but to show you apart from him, giving you a new heart and writing his law in your heart, you will never perfectly keep the law. It points us past 
it. It points us to the sacrificial system, which points us to something more than just a literal lamb or a literal bull. It points us to the Son of God given for us. This is why we don't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, but rather we rejoice in the Old Testament because even there there's gospel truth that points past itself to the coming of Christ who every prophet longed to look into the face of. And we know his name, but they knew his work. And so if you realize you've never had faith in God's word, hear the good news now. Not that you need to clean up your life, but that Christ laid down his life for you. And so now, repent of your sin, turn from it, and turn to Christ and trust him that his forgiveness, his shed blood, is enough for the forgiveness of your sins, that he robes you in his robes of righteousness for perfectly fulfilling the law on your behalf. And now the law, it teaches us how to live a life pleasing to God. Not perfectly, Yet, that one day will come, but now we get to delight in keeping his commandments because they are good. And so in all of this, we heard that Jesus said, I say these things to you that you may be saved. And so Jesus, in his love, has called four witnesses to the stand. John the Baptist, who said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We see the works of Jesus that testify to who he is, the son of God, the one who has come with his kingdom that comes through a cross. And so they testify to who he is, that he is the son of God. We have seen the witness of the father, that the father has said, this is my son, listen to him. And we have seen the witness of scripture that is always, always, always been about Jesus Christ and his salvific saving work, a mystery hidden for ages, which the angels long to look into, but now whose name we know, his name is Jesus. And so what do you do if you find yourself realizing, I have been unwilling to come. I haven't loved God. I have desired man's praise more. I have never had true faith in God's word. Then declare your guilt before these four witnesses and Christ himself will leap off the stand and he will put himself in front of you and say he is guilty, but he or she is mine. I'll take the sentence. I'll take the punishment. You give them what I deserve. You confess your guilt before him. And he says, I will declare you righteous. I will robe you in my righteousness. So come to him and don't ever stop coming to him. Don't ever start thinking there's another way to be made right with God. Don't ever think there's another way to the true God than through Jesus Christ. Don't ever turn to another book that tells you other things than the truth about Jesus as it's revealed in his word. Listen to the witness of John the Baptist. Look at the miracles of Jesus. Hear the Father's voice. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Look through every single page of every single book of this this book 
and trust in him. Won't you come to Christ? Let's pray. God, I trust in your saving power that as your word goes out, you will accomplish what you intend for it to do. And so God, please, would sinners come to you? Would you give them the faith to trust in Christ? Would they be willing to forsake all the praise of the world to get a better treasure, which is you? Would there be no secret sin in our church? Would you uncover everything because you love us so much? And will we daily treasure you above everything? Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.